My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. It's my uh, privilege and honor to, uh, welcome back to all of you from lunch, my privilege and honor to chair this panel, the title of which is the uh, National, Security National Security and the Maritime Industry. Now, uh, I will note for the record that, that prior to when my colleagues at the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute began working on the Jones Act, I knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, I didn't even know it existed or what it was or anything. I was like, what? Um, those of you in this room, uh, if you didn't know something about it, and I suspect many of you did, know a lot more today. Um, what we have heard uh, so far, it seems to me, is, is twofold. The first is that yes, there are costs associated with uh, the Jones Act. Uh, in a few places, in especially the non-contiguous states and territories, those costs are somewhat more noticeable than in the lower 48, as it were, uh, but that the, and that those costs are dispersed. Uh, the benefits are uh, enjoyed by a very small uh, group of, of uh, uh, industries and people in, in the shipbuilding industry. Uh, my colleague Dan Griswold uh, mentioned that with the possible exception of the sugar program, this is the next most uh, uh, egregious example of concentrated benefits and diffused costs. But if the Jones Act exists, in order to provide a national security benefit to the nation, uh, then you would expect there to be costs. So what we're really debating uh, is, are the costs that we incur as a society uh, uh, reasonable relative to the benefits we gain in national security? Right? This is not a, a I'm trying to summarize so far what we've, what we've heard and what I've heard. Because the national security rationale has come up in the prior two panels, even though that was not ostensibly the purpose of those panels. Those panels are mostly focused on the, the economic and downstream costs. So um, I'm joined here today by three people who are really excellent, in an excellent position to focus on the national security implications. And I'm just going to, I'll briefly introduce them. Their, their full bios are available for those of you who are here, uh, or you can go online. But the first person we'll hear from is Steve Ellis, right to my immediate left. He's the Executive Vice President at Taxpayers for Common Sense. Um, I've known Steve for many years. He's spoken here at Cato uh, several times. He is a, a persistent and, and a vocal critic of the budget deficits and federal fiscal policy. He's testified before Congress on numerous occasions. Um, his uh, his Subjects range from earmarks to flood insurance and spending in between. So uh, uh, in addition to that, however, and, and I think in, in large measure the, the main reason why Steve is here, aside from just uh, we like having him here, is hmm. he served for six years in the United States Coast Guard, uh, and he earned his uh, bachelor's degree from the Coast Guard Academy. So Steve knows a lot about uh, maritime trade, maritime industry. Next, we'll hear from Nick Loris. Nick focuses on energy and environmental regulatory issues at the Herbert and Joyce, as the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also a research fellow in Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies, and he writes about energy, energy prices, supplies, and the economic effects of uh, environmental policies. He has also testified uh, before both the House and Senate committee, both before House and Senate committees, and published widely. Uh, he received his master's degree in economics from 
George Mason University. And our third and final speaker on the uh, end of the stage there is Rob Cortell. He's the chairman and CEO of Intellex, but uh, for the purposes of this discussion, he is, uh, his expertise comes from being a former member of the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission, uh, and he is uh, an internationally recognized expert on maritime and transportation security issues. He's been a senior policy advisor to a number of figures, um, public figures into Congress. His undergraduate degree is from Rice, and he has a master's from Yale's School of Organization and Management. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So with that, I will turn it over to Steve. Uh, I'm hoping we'll have a, a fairly uh, free-flowing discussion here, but also leave plenty of time for those of you in the audience. So Steve, take it away. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, to, thanks for having me here. Uh, it's always good to be here at Cato, and thank you for uh, attending. Um, I'll be really brief because I know a lot of the issues, underlying issues about the Jones Act and the issue uh, around that has been covered uh, this morning. Um, but just to flag a couple points and then and raise one particular issue, and that is, um, so when you look at coastwise trade, so trade among ports along the U.S. coast, um, it has actually declined by 45% since 1960, while other forms of trade, rail, tr uh, pipeline, trucking have all increased, and actually even Riverborne uh, has increased during that time. Um, you also see at that time there's about, we went from 166 or, or more Jones Act eligible vessels in 2000 down to uh, 96 um, as of just uh, two months ago. Um, so you, you, one thing is, is this is a protect, this protectionist policy is what is, what are we protecting? Um, if it's, it's diminishing and it's clearly not working. Um, but then also there's some other costs that I don't think have been brought up as yet, and that is when you look at these large container ships that are coming to the U.S., um, they make one, two, possibly three port calls. Um, uh, and obviously they can't transport U.S. goods from any of those ports to the other U.S. ports. Um, so you have this, one, very inefficient. They're still making the port calls. The second thing, though, is, is that all the, if the ports along the eastern seaboard, they are wanting to deepen their ports um, so that they can attract this, this container traffic. And so you have deepening projects that are either recently been completed, are being done, or are planned in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Norfolk, Charleston, Savannah, um, Jacksonville, Port Everglades, Miami, and that's just the, that's just the east coast. Um, all of those projects are paid for, 65% of the cost of a deepening project is paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. And so what you're finding is, is we're developing this overcapacity of, of, of ports that, that is very beneficial to foreign shipping lines because they can play one port off of another one. We've certainly seen that in the past. Mayors did that to New York um, back about 10 years ago when they were trying to decide where to have their um, home port or their main base. Um, and so the taxpayer is actually funding this, this overcapacity. Um, and there is no, uh, the Corps of Engineers looks at each of these projects in a stovepipe. They look at them because they're the, the, the agency that evaluates and, and then seeks the authorization for these projects. And so they don't consider that Charleston's going to have a deeper harbor when, they consider, when they're recommending Savannah. And so you're not even having, and there is no planning as to, okay, this is what makes the most sense. Portland, Oregon is 80 miles upriver. It's not going to be that attractive uh, it's where, uh, to, um, to the shipping lines, and so that's not going to be where we should put the, uh, the investment. So there's no strategy from the government on that as well. And so you have a case of where, so for instance, the, uh, uh, 
ports of Georgia, so Savannah predominantly, but also Brunswick, they are uh, in the process of planning and estimating that they are going to be able to uh, serve 10 million 20-foot equivalent units, TEUs, of, of cargo in 10 years' time. To put that in perspective, that's more than LA and Long Beach, the number one and number two U.S. ports did last year combined. <laughs> so it's a huge amount of overcapacity. And then lastly, you know, and I know this hasn't touched as much on the national security argument, but I think that'll be coming up, is when you look at, um, you know, there's an argument that we need these ships. I've already pointed out that there's, there's dramatically uh, uh, fewer Jones Act eligible ships. But then also we do have the Maritime uh, Sea Lift Command, but then also the Military Sea Lift Command. But then also if you look at um, in 1991 with the Persian Gulf War, a quarter of all of our military supplies going over to uh, the Persian Gulf were carried on foreign flag vessels. And so clearly that is a, we, they are available and there is capacity to meet those needs if they come to that. And that all gets back to Chris's point is at what cost do we want to actually um, continue this policy? And then I'll... Stop there. Okay, thank you. Nick, go ahead. Great, well thank you um, all for coming today and thanks to Cato for having me here. Um, I would echo all of those points. You know, from a national security perspective, I work on energy and environment policy, uh, but Heritage has written this uh, about the Jones Act from both an economic and national security perspective. Um, and we've actually made the point that the Jones Act actually hinders national security, certainly not helps it. Um, even if we were to need um, X amount of ships. Uh, this is a very screwy, stupid way to pay for it. I mean, if we, if we think about what you want to get from national security, um, and it being a, a public good that's non-rival and non-excludable, then let's have DOD make the case that they need X amount of ships for DOD purposes and spread the cost among all the taxpayers, not just the people who are incurring the cost as Jones Act users. So, so that's the, the first point. Uh, and then I think we can have a robust discussion as to how many ships they need. Um, but secondly, given the ability to buy and lease uh, foreign flagged ships uh, as they have in the past, as, uh, as we just heard, um, you know, that allows DOD to stretch their dollars further. If they can be more wise uh, about their spending um, they can stretch those dollars further, um, and actually we could have a, a more robust uh, capacity here in the United States uh, rather than simply have this protected industry. And I think we all know that um, protectionism doesn't actually help the industry it, it protects um, because it prevents them from innovating uh, and lowering their cost to be competitive uh, with um, other you know, shipbuilders, or you know, really for any industry. I mean, look at the the taxi cabs in, in D.C. Um, compared to pre Uber and Lyft to now. Um, you know, they're starting to make changes that I don't think they would have ever considered had they not been subject to competition. You know, they're they're changing their meters. That they're having digitization um, where they're going to offer you to pay with your phone um, rather than just pay with cash or a credit card. Um, They're they going to have maps that show where you actually rode, um, so you're not getting fleeced um, by a, a cab driver driving five miles out of his way to, to upcharge you. You know, there's just a number of innovations they now have to make uh, in order to compete with Uber and Lyft. I think if you subject the U.S. industry uh, in the shipbuilding capacities to those market realities, you, you might get a smaller fleet, um, and you, you might get smaller shipbuilding capacity in the United States, but I think you'll get the, the, the most competitive elements here in the United States. And so um, that's my focus. And my, my focus of the essay, even though it's not national security, 
uh, related um, that I wrote for Cato uh, relates to what the last panel was talking about in this relation to uh, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. And I think that's a, a, a real critical element to this discussion. Um, and what I tried to write is that I think that's important, but it's obviously clear from a public choice perspective why it's hard to get the lower for the 48 states to, to kind of care about this issue. Uh, but there are a lot of small businesses who are impacted uh, by this protectionism. Um, you know, it, it, it is the, the folks in Hawaii, and, and I wrote about small businesses who have gone out of business and they've had to lay off 50 workers uh, at a bakery because the, the looming cost and the lasting cost of the Jones Act, they just couldn't keep up with them. Uh, I met with uh, uh, a rum distiller who's a, a family-owned shop in, uh, on the island of Kauai. Um, and one, you should take a uh, a meeting with a rum distiller for a, a lot of reasons. <laughs> in Kauai. So, yeah, yeah, in Kauai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The free samples, the trip, uh, it's all good. Um, but it's the same thing. I mean, you know, he, he's worried about the future of his business uh, because of these costs. There are farmers in Iowa who are, are losing business opportunities because uh, coastal states will rather buy their, their products from Chile or Brazil or Canada. Uh, and so I think if you get uh, the folks who are hurt by these dispersed costs, and I know Rob is kind of the godfather of this movement uh, in the Jones Act Reform Coalition, so I look forward to kind of hearing what he has to say about that. But I think that's how you, you start to make a difference when you get all of these people together because uh, strange bedfellows can sometimes turn some heads in Washington. And I think if you have uh, farmers, energy companies, uh, and small businesses all knocking on the doors of members of Congress, uh, then you actually have a fighting chance against this entrenched interest because what we've seen is that uh, you know, the people who benefit from the Jones Act are, are very well funded and very well organized because this is the issue you know, that where their bread and butter comes from. Uh, and so anytime there's a conference like this or even an op-ed, you know, they come swarming. Uh, I think that the way to uh, actually fight against that uh, is to not just have conferences like this, but to, to get an ongoing coalition um, of all of these dispersed costs uh, really to fight against this policy, both from an economic standpoint, but also the kind of false national security narrative that, that's out there. Very good. Thank you, and, Rob. And my understanding is we're going to be trying some of that rum tonight. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. So uh, notwithstanding all of the conversation around economic costs and benefits, uh, and the Jones Act Reform Coalition had a, in, formed in 1990 four or five, I can't remember what year. Um, there, we had, a, a, uh, we had trade associations and individual companies representing a million US companies whose economic interests were uh, affected negatively by the Jones Act. But we could still not win the argument. <laughs> and the reason we couldn't win it is because the opponents, the beneficiaries, throw up one thing that is almost unmeasurable where it was until 1992, which happened before that, but they forgot, <laughs> which was that the Jones Act was written to help provide for a, a ma massive fleet for use in times of war, crews for these ships, and a, and a shipbuilding industry that could build ships in time of war and in times of peace, provide shipyards that could build, you know, that could keep going, uh, because the Jones Act was going to provide them a constant stream of orders of ships. So in uh, 1992, right, uh, 91, right after the Gulf War, which occurred when I was 
Federal Maritime Commissioner, um, I was able to spend a lot of time with the Transportation Command, the Military Sealift Command, and all of the military side, and, um, and uh, follow the war closely, because I was commissioner. And I wrote a paper then called America's Welfare Queen Fleet. <laughs> uh, and I called it that because of all the subsidies. This is probably the most heavily subsidized per capita per unit of economic activity of any industry, any industry in the United States, uh, with the least output. So the opening paragraph, which I'm going to read you because I, I want to set it up as this is what the opponents to what we're trying to do here will throw back at us. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, the United States responded just days later with a military sea lift, the success of which is unparalleled. In just 45 days, the United States moved to Saudi Arabia, the equivalent of a city the size of Alexandria, Virginia, lock, stock, and barrel. So that part's true. <laughs> American commercial ships crewed by thousands of young, well-trained Americans on the world's fastest, most modern ships, um, um, on the world's fastest, most modern ships. The American merchant marine threaded its way through the dangers of the naval mines laid off Saudi shores. The military was able to call in the service of this private fleet at only a moment's notice and paid no more than market rates. This success story was made possible by a far-sighted competitive merchant marine policy set in place years ago by the US Congress. So the point is, none of how it happened was true. And that was, we were able to figure that out by looking <laughs> at the actual numbers. So there were about 400, and it's been a while since I've looked at the numbers, but there were about 460 ship trips to the Gulf War, which carried the equivalent of Alexandria, Virginia in 45 days. 80 of those were American flag ships. The rest were either foreign flag ships or US government owned ships, i.e. non-commercial, gray hull. Um, of the 80 American flag ships, six were part of the subsidized fleet. The other 80 were not under subsidies. A lot of them were oil tankers and things like that, which don't get, or did not get at the time, operating subsidies. Of the six, one, one was a Jones Act ship. Well, sort of. It was a vessel that was serving Puerto Rico, sitting on the beach, almost beyond repair, which was then repaired in time for the war at the end, and it finally got into service. So the biggest myth about the Jones Act, and the one which, if you spend any time actually looking at numbers, is the biggest lie, is that the Jones Act is about national security. Now, some of the speakers here, anybody on, in this room will say, well, it's about national security. The Merchant Marine Act of 1920 was about national security, right? So the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 was written largely because during World War I, we had no merchant fleet to speak of. And so we had to build ships, and we had to use foreign ships. And of course, it got cut off. And, back and forth, and so the Congress decided they had to do something about that, and they wanted to create the capability to have an American fleet for the next war. Um, the Jones Act was not part of that conversation. As the bill made its way through Congress, it was not part of the hearings. As it made its way to the floor, it was not actually part of the floor conversation. The Jones Act was inserted by Senator Jones, Wesley Jones, who was the, one of the primary authors of the 1920 Merchant Marine Act, which was for the purpose of national security. 
was really an attempt to solve a problem for his railroads, hmm. which carried cargo to Alaska. Now, earlier laws had said you can't carry cargo in U.S. trade. Um, it has to be a U.S. flagship between two U.S. ports. Um, there was a, sh a shipping line that was carrying it to, um, I, I, I can't remember if it was Fairbanks, or one of the others, to one part of Alaska, and then they put it on a train and carry it to another point in Canada, and then they'd bring it back to the other side of Alaska. And the train, that train happened to be non-U.S. Uh, I can't even, I think the ships were American, and they were essentially evading the law. But there were also Chinese ships um, running up and down the coast, uh, serving Alaska as well. So the ultimate, so he put this piece, uh, this little amendment into the floor bill, and it passed on a voice vote with no conversation, all in, essentially intended to protect a constituent industry. Not ships, <laughs> not shippers, meaning the people who own the cargo, but railroads. And that has been the actual impact of the Jones Act. The Jones Act, in the natural hierarchy of the cost of moving goods, the cheapest is ships. And the next may or may not be trucks, and the next may or may not be trains. And depending on the market, they right. move around in these places. And then you have airplanes, of course, on which we fly cows. Yes. Um, uh, so, <laughs> because of the Jones Act. <laughs> so, what it did was make shipping in domestic trades more expensive than truck or train. So the impact from a market standpoint is to move cargo off ships and put it on trucks and trains. And when you do that, ships have less business and therefore fleets are more expensive and operating costs and all the rest of this. So to me, first of all, it wasn't meant for the purposes of national defense, even though the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 was. And people in this room understand that not all laws named reform, <laughs> save, or whatever do that or intended to do that. Um, but the proof is also in the pudding. If the intent is to create a, um, a band of sailors, we, we may numerically, and there was a study done last year, have technically enough um, co uh, commercial sailors that if we had to call them up to run the ready reserve fleet, uh, we would have 1.75 turns. And sailors, they work on, in theory, on three eight-hour shifts, and, um, and in theory, they operate you know, two months on, two months off, or three months on, three months off. In a, in a war, it's more like um, three on, two off, and so you have to shift the numbers. But the reality is, we really don't have enough sailors. Over 25% of the sailors we have uh, range in age from 60 to 90. There is no requirement that if they're called up, they go to war, and they didn't in any of the last couple wars. So at one point, the maritime administrator um, had to actually ask for permission to bring in foreign sailors on US flagged ships, and he got it. So it doesn't produce enough sailors because, oh, guess what? There are not enough ships. Now, the opponents of change spent a lot of time in obfuscation, misdirection, and sometimes, dare I say, lying. <laughs> Um, so, for example, what you will hear, and, and my friend from Hawaii made the point uh, in a private conversation that he had invited the senator from Hawaii to debate the Jones Act, and she had agreed, and then last minute canceled and sent a video in which she claimed a quarter million Americans 
lives are dependent on the Jones Act. Well, there are probably a quarter million Americans who work on the ports and in the docks and all the rest of that, but 98% of trade is on international ships coming to and leaving from the United States. So at best, 2% of the 240,000 people, <laughs> or 4,800, might be associated with the domestic shipping industry. In the domestic shipping industry, you have barges, which is a successful industry. We, we are really good at making barges. Um, and that's good because we have a lot of rivers. Um, um, you have um, US flagships, and then you have Jones Act. And Jones Act is a teeny weeny piece of this. Um, at the end of World War II, we had 2,000 ships. Uh, today, when I wrote this particular article, I think we had 300 and some, and today I think it's around 190 that are US flag. Most of those are oil tankers. They can't carry troops, they can carry oil. We need a lot of oil in, in, when we go to these far places, so that's a good thing. Um, so we don't have the sailors because we don't have the ships. And we don't have the ships because we don't have the shipyards that can produce ships at markets that can be sustained, at prices that can be sustained by markets or the business they don't have. So historically, we've subsidized shipyards. We've subsidized the operating companies for the sailors for whom they pay, well, in 1960-something, it was about $160,000, which would be $400,000 per job. So the average American, who at the time was making about $35,000 take-home pay, per household was subsidizing a guy making $165,000 for his job out of his paycheck and his taxes. So we don't have, we can't, so the sailors are part of the cost problem. We, we don't have the, the numbers today. So if you get back to the ships and the shipyards, um, they're primarily, there are a handful of shipyards left, and Mike Hansen up here and others will talk about shipbuilding. Um, they produce, maybe we may produce two and a half ships a year in, all, in the handful of yards we have that are commercial. Um, uh, but, and we've, one of the things someone mentioned earlier, the Reagan thing, what he did was he eliminated shipbuilding subsidies. So we were subsidizing people, ship operating, and shipbuilding, and right. still couldn't get a fleet out of that. Right. Uh, and constraining markets, and still couldn't get a fleet out of that big enough to support a wartime effort. So it wasn't written for national security purposes. And while we may want to argue that it's thought to be that, the numbers show it didn't serve us when the national security events came about. So why doesn't the military oppose it? Mm. Because they're soldiers. <laughs> they have to salute the politicians. Why don't the politicians oppose it? Well, I know from my party, so I've just spent the last three days with George Bush, um, and the, I was the third person he hired and I've been, I was in the Ford campaign and the Ford uh, White House and the Bush, you know, and this and that, and commissioner. And the politicians in the Republican Party, I can tell you, mainly want to get the endorsement of the one labor union that will endorse us, Merchant Mates and Pilots. Um, so they don't cross the unions and they don't cross the Jones Act because it's teeny. It's, you know, a couple billion dollars a year impact. And, most of us don't feel that one cent per gallon of gasoline. Um, and the Democrats, you know, they're largely labor-leaning. And I don't mean that as a pejorative, but I'm just as a political analyst. So, so the heart of this 
is we know there's economic damage. And actually, the military knows it doesn't do a thing for them. But they got to salute. And that's what the task is before us in, in this whole issue of defense and the Jones Act. Great. Thank you all. Um, I'm curious. We'll, we'll try and get a, a little bit of a conversation going. But again, I do want to leave time for questions. The first thing that jumps out at me um, in, in hearing this um, is, as with many public policies, if you look at the state of affairs in the present and you look at where the situation was when the policy was first enacted, you measure the success or failure of the policy by whether things are better. However, if they're not better, then the, the immediate reaction is, well, it would have been worse were it not for the policy in question. Right. So I asked the three of you, uh, and I, Steve mentioned 96 Jones Act ships. Um, uh, Colin Graybow uh, pulled together some data, you know, d just throw out some numbers. Since 1983, 300 U.S. shipyards have closed. Um, of the, there were once 35 shipyards that could build naval ships. Now there are seven. Um, the numbers of uh, qualified crews, we're talking about something like uh, a few thousand, right? It's, it's tiny and, and smaller than it was when we started. Right. So how are we to believe or are we to believe that the situation would be considerably worse were it not for the Jones Act? Any well, one of you. <laughs> well, I mean, as I said, I mean, there's not much left to protect right. um, for this protectionist policy. And yet, but then the flip side of that is there could be significant benefit of even, you know, I mentioned about the container ships taking U.S. goods from U.S. port to U.S. port, the foreign container ships. I mean, that's untapped capacity. That would be more efficient. It would also take containers, um, trucks off the road in congested areas, and you would have more efficient. And then also, I think it would... Maybe they'd be foreign built, but it could even start the developing like a hub and spoke system and you'd actually have feeder ships that are going along, which would actually provide more opportunities for mariners. For mariners, right. Yeah. That, that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I'm, I think that they could have actually been stronger and more robust without the protectionism um, rather than just kind of keeping this, this small base and letting it slowly atrophy because you do subject them to competition. And I think that's ultimately what you want. And um, there's a good chance it could have died off, but I think there's also a very good chance that given um, an opportunity to truly innovate and know those price points at which you're economically competitive, uh, that you might have a more robust industry. Mm -hmm. so, so I agree with all that. Um, but I think if you, I, I think we, we sort of, you do have to sort of address the military requirement head on. Right. Um, if the military truly believes they need to have more ships, what have they done about it? knowing that they don't have enough in the so-called Jones Act fleet nor in the U.S. flag fleet. So what happened was uh, Reagan eliminated the operating subsidy, and he eliminated the shipbuilding subsidy, which is why someone mentioned that dip. Um, uh, after 83. I mean, that yeah, was, after yeah, 83. Right, yeah. And, you know, a set of people will say, well, that killed it off. Well, the other side of that is that they couldn't survive without it, and it wasn't making them any bigger either. They were actually shrinking as all that was happening. Right. Um, so uh, in the, I think it was the 90s, um, and I think it was the Clinton administration, it's been a while since I've looked, but 
they created the so-called visa program, which um, was a re-upping of these operating subsidies for ship operators. Uh, now, in the old days, um, a ship operator had to have an American flag ship and American crew, largely, to get the subsidy. And by the way, um, it's not just ships that get this kind of military subsidy. So the airlines have a program called CRAP, where they are paid a certain amount of money to be able to convert a plane into a, a carrier for use in the, in the war. Um, um, and I will go back to that in a minute, too, because interesting data around that. Um, but if they want a bigger fleet, what they thought they had to do was subsidize more U.S. flag companies to come in. The big problem in the Gulf War was that U.S. flag companies didn't want to go to the war um, because they would lose their uh, market share in the international markets in which they were operating. <laughs> um, so now the visa program has been crafted so the American flag operators can use foreign flag ships and pretend they're American. And these guys, it's sort of like in the, in the Civil War, um, uh, if you were drafted, you could pay someone else to take your place. <laughs> so that's essentially what US flag operators are doing under the program we are subsidizing. Uh, for them to provide ships that they're handing the money to some foreign flag company after they've gotten it from us for them to do it. So it's exactly like the Civil War draft. Um, now, one question you might say is, why do they worry about American sailors and American ships? And, um, and the reason is, in theory, uh, it's because they want people who are loyal to the United States. Um, in all of those hundreds of trips that were, that were run by, probably, it wasn't hundreds, probably just around 100, about, a, about 25 or more percent of the... the in the Gulf War. In, in the, the Gulf War, Gulf, for yeah. example. Um, there was only one, there was one incident uh, with a foreign flag operator, uh, even though they manufactured a couple for a report, but there was really only one, where a crew, a German crew, refused to go into the war. And it was because um, an American company under Kraft, the airplane program, refused to fly the crew to the war to put on the ship. <laughs> so that was the one incident which was really triggered by an American company. Um, and uh, they, as I say, they manufactured a few others. But the loyalty thing is, you know, the allies are, are where they are because, and where we are historically because we are allies and we jointly fight wars and everything else. Now, if you have a future war which someone else alluded to in a conversation, we don't know. Right. I have two questions that, that sort of flow from that, Rob, a little bit. First of all, I, I have a question about there are obviously many, essentially countless, different uh, uh, products and services and industries that are militarily relevant in the time of crisis. Right. Um, and again, I'm, I'm an ex-Navy guy, so I have a particular right. bias. I'm from Maine. I have a bias towards the sea. You know, all, bath, all that. All bath. Yeah, that's, yeah, bad. All on the table, right? It's all on the table. And yet, we have a viable, more than just viable, aviation industry in this country. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like the Jones Act that is protecting uh, American aircraft manufacturers uh, in the way that the Jones Act uh, uh, professes to protect the shipping industry. How do we explain that? Why, why is that? Uh, is it that aircraft isn't, aren't really as relevant, uh, or is it something else? 
uh, it sounds to me like the way you described it, I like, I'm a historian, so I love hearing stories about where policies actually come from. Um, <laughs> so that was helpful. Um, but, but again, are we to believe that there's something unique about ships and shipping that, that explain this, or, or does that not hold water? Does that not bear, bear scrutiny? You guys want to... Hold water. It? I'm going to stick with the hold water. <laughs> well, well I, I'm not a professional historian, but you know that, you know, man talked, wrote about ships and navies being critical to yes. national survival, both from an economic standpoint and others. And, in fact, um, the maritime industry is critical. Some, as I said, I think it's 92% today of all goods come via ship from overseas. And that's a, a big chunk. It's about 25% of the economy, if I remember correctly, somewhere in that range. So a lot of American jobs depend on trade that comes in and out on ships. Yeah. And, and the, the balance of it, which you, you described it exactly accurately in terms of capacity bumping, you know, kind of works against us in some ways. Um, but um, airplanes were, in, were only first used in World War I. Remember that? So... I doubt that when they were, they weren't thinking of air, airplanes as sort of a strategic asset so much at that moment. It was, right. it was something new. If, if it were, but, but that does raise the other question, if you, it, which I started talking about. If you, if you want to build a fleet to carry your goods, and they're still going to need a fleet to carry these massive amounts of fuel and, and, and machinery and right. all that, and they fly some, but they mainly don't, um, then, you sh- then they should be thinking about what that new policy is. How do you build a fleet? Right. Or, and they've talked about everything from literally building a fleet or, or paying the, the cost of ships that would be able to be swapped in and out. Uh, and some of our ships can be. Um, there have been a lot of schemes, but you know, I personally think it's a great time to be looking at um, the ship, shipping market. So um, I think ships are probably at a pretty low uh, cost right now. I mean, you mm-hmm. can go out and buy a bunch of ships. You can buy a couple hundred ships and put them right. in a commercial use and, yeah. ret- and fit, retrofit them with, um, they, they would be newer than the ships we have. The ships we have, I think, are around 30, 31 years old on average. It's like uh, the average ship in the world fleet is probably around 12. Um, the average life, the, the useful life of a ship is 20. So, you know, we're way past that. Um, so uh, they should be thinking about how to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem of manpower mm-hmm. is uh, yet another problem. Interesting thing. So the Navy is researching, like everybody else, autonomous vehicles and autonomous airplanes. And, you know, they're going to be throwing autonomous aircraft and autonomous everything, tanks, they're doing tanks. I used to be in the Army Science Board, so we were way back, you know, thinking about these things, throwing that in. And they're going to be throwing ships in. So that would reduce the manning requirement. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, shipbuilding. This is a question for the defense um, theorists, uh, how likely is it that we will be able to build ships in any war going forward? Now, Afghanistan is now the longest war in American history. I think that's however many, 15 yes. years or something. Yeah. We could have built ships for that. Yes. And any given <laughs> ship would have been 25% of the cost of the war so far, given the cost of building a ship. Ships, right. ships here cost three, four, five, six times what a ship costs in the world market. Um, because we don't have long production lines, because we don't have demand, and it's just this vicious cycle. You right. know, you can't you can't build a ship at a world price because no one will finance it. It has to be an American company essentially financing it. They're not going to buy pay for something that can't be sold in the global market. Um, that if it is sold, it's sold for twenty cents on the dollar. 
So we, it's just this big, vicious cycle. So I think the military should be thinking about how to address their problem. And Nick, you raised this a little bit, and you guys talk about it in your paper, right, about, about actually having the military come forward and, and explain what would be required under what circumstances. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's honestly just what we want, is just to have a, an open, honest, transparent conversation about what DOD needs uh, and how best to... Um, Get that. Right. Uh, and, and it also pertains, it, it's also about under what set of circumstances, right? There are certain assumptions in terms of how long you will have to mobilize these resources to get them to a particular place over what distance. Um, so it's a question of sort of the, the urgency of it and, and the time. Um, and it seems to me that, that the other side has to rely on what seemed to me to be some pretty sort of dystopian counterfactuals of, of this is what we have to worry about. Um, we heard someone today invoke the Falklands War, but of course the, the most recent naval uh, you know, war that we fought where this came into effect in the Gulf War, we can see that those dystopian counterfactuals were not true, or if anything, they, they uh, do not contribute, to, they would not support continuation of the Jones Act. They, they cut in the opposite direction, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think the unfortunate thing is, is to what Rob was saying is that uh, unfortunately sometimes they're told what politicians tell them to do rather right. than actually being sincere. Um, and then uh, proponents of the Jones Act pay uh, huge sums of money to retired officials to write op-eds. Uh, and then that makes them look good from a national security perspective. But it, again, it's just all this. You know. right. It's also from the, from the Pentagon's perspective, it's not worth the fight. Yes. Like, there's, right. no, yes. there's no upside for them right. to come out and right. say, oh, right. we don't really need the Jones Act. Right. Yeah. right. There's one other thing that I, that, uh, I think it was uh, 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 Brian, Brian Riley from NTU brought up this morning about uh, the potential for greater foreign investment in the American shipbuilding industry, mm -hmm. right? So the concern expressed that uh, if uh, the, the same sort of protections were not afforded, the handful of American shipbuilders that are building Jones Act ships then the, there would be foreign investors coming in and sort of being, you know, representing a national security threat. Um, he pointed out we have already a, a process for reviewing foreign ownership of American assets, the CFIUS process, which has now been essentially reformed and up, updated uh, most recently, something that I've started to look into a little bit. Um, anyone want to comment on that at all? Is that something, it, do, do we not already have uh, regulations and oversight in place that would mitigate the most harmful effects of that? I mean, as, as Brian and you, you raised, yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And obviously, if that does become something of a concern, it's something that could be dealt with in the context of a Jones Act repeal or reform mm -hmm. to, to make sure that that um, isn't, isn't a problem. But again, we're not building ships here, you know what I mean? Right, so right. It's, so it's, it's, it's less of an issue in that respect. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I also think it's worth um, talking about some definitions too. So we do build ships. We build tugboats and we build um, uh, service boats for oil, for, for um, oil platforms and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Those are smaller. Um, we build research vessels. We, and we actually have uh, various tiers of shipbuilding industry. We, uh, there's a very robust barge building industry. It's basically steel bending. We're good at that. We could sell barges all around the planet. We probably do. Um, we have a pretty robust middle tier that builds small ships and, and you know, barge is flat and the ship has a hull. <laughs> and, um, and then there are the yards that build what you would call deep draft ocean going ships. 
Um, and that's where we hit, that's what you really need for military, and we, that's what we really don't have. Mm -hmm. and that's what's dropped from 2,000 to under 200 yeah. today, and, um, and of those, only a certain percentage can be used. So, so I think you have to sort of decide where you want to go on that. And another piece of history, in the 90s, the, um, the uh, Clinton administration was negotiating a treaty, shipbuilding treaty. I think somebody even alluded to that in one of the earlier speeches, too on eliminating shipbuilding subsidies from around the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, right. our position was we did not subsidize our ships. You know, we, even though we had a direct subsidy for buying a ship, and even though the Jones Act subsidizes ships by right. closing a market. Um, but uh, they were very close. There was a guy named John Stoker, who was head of the Shipping, uh, Shipbuilders Association of America, something like that. And uh, he, they really had it really close to basically eliminating all of this. And, the, the, the medium tier yards that I was talking about, they were all for it because they knew they could compete. Mm -hmm. But the big yards killed it. Right, right. And so they were close. Right. You know, there's always competing interests in this town. Okay. Um, anything else that I haven't raised before I throw it open to the, uh, the audience that's champing at the bit to talk about this? Is there anything else? That... No. All right, well, let me, um, I will uh, throw it open to the audience. We have a few rules here at the Cato Institute. Um, First of all, wait to be called on uh, and wait for the microphone for the benefit of those who are watching online in particular. Um, announce your name and affiliation if you have one. We know you have a name. You may not have an affiliation. <laughs> um, and uh, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means frame your question in the form of a question, please. <laughs> um, who would like to be first off here? Oh, don't be shy. All right, here we have a right there. <laughs> Ed Cattell. Uh, in years past, uh, there was quite a bit mentioned about the what was called the effective American control fleet. These right. were the Panamanian, Liberian right. ships, now Vanatu, right. I guess, yeah. that were American-owned, American-controlled. They just right. didn't have American flags. Right. My impression is that more recently that fleet has turned into giant VLCCs, bulk carriers. Yeah. They're not really ships that the military can use. Is that correct? Uh, I admit, I don't know the current figures, but it makes a lot of sense. And uh, you are correct. Well, the military does need, they need fuel. They, they consume two big things, liquid bulk. One is fuel and the other is water. <laughs> And, and uh, I have a lot of stories about water from the Army Science Board. But, um, <laughs> um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. And uh, the economics for container shipping are not there in general. You know, that's why there's so many ships on the, on, running around at a cheap price right now. And of course, we have these massive, massive 20,000 container ships coming on, online. And we may have a port that can hold them. And that, by the way, that's an opportunity for American shipping. Um, so in Europe, and Asia and all the rest, you have transshipping. Transshipping is when, you know, you think of direct shipping, it goes to a port and everything comes off and you put on railroads or trucks and it gets dispersed. And uh, we have a very large port not far south of here, which is Norfolk, Newport News. Um, and they, they're at the end of a rail corridor, basically, and LA's at the end of a corridor, most of these places. And the military, by the way, studies that. They really want to know that they can get the stuff from depots and out. Um, in Europe, and, and it's going to happen here for the same reasons, and um, mainly Asia, 
these big ships are going to come in, and then they're going to put it on other smaller ships, and then they're going to disperse it by water because that's cheaper than trying to do it by rail or truck. And some of those may go to other places and disperse by barge or by something else. Right. And the process works in reverse. So small loads will get consolidated into medium-sized ships, and they'll get consolidated into big ships, and it reduces travel and everything else. Of course, it also reduces labor right. costs because right. these big ships, you know, one of these giant carriers can run with probably 17 people, probably less. The Japanese have been running ships with 11, 12, 13 people for 30 years um, versus uh, there's probably still a ship in the U.S. Jones Act fleet that requires by law 30 people. I don't know for a fact, right. but I'd be right. willing to bet. Yeah, I was going to ask a related question. You addressed it a little bit, Rob. So you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, it is not obvious to me that the, the types of ships that are being constructed in compliance with the Jones Act are the types of ships that we actually will need today and into the future. And then that raises the question about sort of not merely the suitability of those ships, but the adaptability of the yards that we have to to build different types of vessels that will be more relevant in, in future. Well, future so, so the, the main companies that order ships that the military could use would be Crowley Maritime, mm -hmm. which has some containers and some, um, and, and a lot of oil and, and product, and then uh, Matza Navigation, and then Totem out on the, uh, it's got a different name now, out on the other side of the, you know, and, and Matson goes back and forth to Hawaii and around. And the issue there is they're building, when they order a ship, it's, it's a, the kind of ship that can be used, but they have no excess capacity right. because it costs so much for them to right. buy a ship. Right. So they don't have one standing by to give to them. If they, literally, it's what happened in the Gulf War. If they get a call, they're going to lose a market. Right. Other questions? Uh, right here in the front, and I see you over there, sir. Uh, Dave Longstock, no affiliation. Uh, but this is primarily directed for those at the Heritage. Um, Heritage is a pro-military think tank. I just want to know if you're aware that every year the, uh, the Navy League has their sea, air, space event over at the Gaylord uh, Hotel over in uh, National Harbor. You heard of that? I went to the last one, and they went to, uh, they had another session on the Jones Act, and every speaker was pro-Jones Act. Right, right. So uh, I was wondering if you were aware of that and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, whether you could have influence to you know, change some of that. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I had a related question. I, I do think this is mostly for you, Nick, because uh, I have, you know, Heritage has done a lot of work on this, and I'm sort of curious what the reaction has been, uh, you know, sort of weighing in on, on this as a national security issue and how you've, how you've responded to that. I yeah, and, and so I focus on, I'm on our domestic policy team, so I work on energy policy, as I mentioned earlier, but you know, I think that's one area where Heritage is trying to bring more credibility to this argument to the table, that this is not a national security benefit, that it actually hinders national security. And, and we do have a, a lot of uh, ex-military, retired military, who are universally uh, opposed to this policy, and so it's our goal to get those people in front of as many people as possible to talk about why this is wrong. And I think that, you know, in private conversations, a lot of these guys will say, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's dumb. But uh, as Steve mentioned, that, you know, publicly, um, they're either 
being paid to say something else, or it's just not the, the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze for them. And that's unfortunate. But um, we try consistently, and it's been a, a white whale of our organization since well before uh, I came to the Heritage Foundation 10 years ago. Uh, it's just, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle because of the, the benefits versus the costs there. I think related, Rob, so you mentioned being part of this coalition going back to, what, 94, 95? Is that right? Yeah. And, and so what happened? I mean, oh, I mean you, so, obviously, you obviously didn't succeed that last no, time around. That's so, right. so, you know, well, and, and believe me, I have other things to be doing, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think just one more quick comment on, on the heritage thing, and to your point. Um, the the pro-Jones Act forces ha have a very active lobbying effort and PR effort ongoing, and it's been ongoing ever since 1990, maybe it was 96, <laughs> that I headed up this organization, Jones Act Reform Co Coalition, JARC, uh, because they were taken, they were blindsided by it. What happened was a group of North Carolina farmers who had been unable to get grain during a snowstorm, they used to get it by ship, uh, uh, and then they could no longer get the grain ships, and they want specific ships. This, this is the only business you will ever see where they don't care what the customer wants. <laughs> You're the customer, you should take what we got. Okay? So there are specialized ships to carry grain. And the, the grain shippers and the buyers and sellers want it in those ships. But there were like two left, and I don't think there are any left today. Um, there's specialized ships to carry uh, salt or or rocks, you know, minerals, and specialized oil tankers. Well, the, the industry's response to the farmers on getting grain by ship was, well, we'll clean out an oil tanker for you. <laughs> so now it may be technically that there's no phenols or any other kind of smelly <laughs> stuff left in the ship, and that's perfectly fine, but they didn't want it. So that, but that was all they got. Right. This was like the Hawaiian cattleman. So, um, so it was agriculture, big agriculture and small agriculture, hog farms all around, chicken farms, everything else. Um, they couldn't get the grain. They ended up having to be on, on, on getting it on trains. And then it snowed, you know, one winter <laughs> so that they couldn't get it in in time for their feed, their, right. their stuff. Right. Um, now, we all know hog farmers have other issues like you know, pollution. <laughs> but, yeah. um, and then, you know, the Hawaiian Cattlemen Association, um, the... Um, there were, um, Axo Salt was part of it, um, the uh, Farm Bureau. Uh, I mean, anybody who, who would like to have shipped the tim timber industry. The oil industry, interestingly, didn't join because they, of course, are very concerned about their PR. They su supported us behind the scenes, but I don't ever remember us mm -hmm. getting any mm -hmm. money. Um, and, um, and it was because they sort of, to, you've alluded to this, which is that, is it worth the fight? It's not going to change. It's worth the fight. You know, one year, Trent Lott said to me, Rob, you've made more money for lobbyists in this town than I know, than you, you possibly know, uh, <laughs> on the Jones Act. You know, I've created a whole bevy of lawyers when we started this organization, Jones Act Reform Coalition. See, the, the, and, that, and, and we were outspent. Easily yeah. twenty to one. I mean on that part you can count. That story, Rob. But we did get legislation introduced several times. Yeah. Uh, McCain introduced legislation. Introduced we it. got a hearing right. for the yeah, first yeah. time on the Jones Act that was open and balanced. See, th that story to me, there is a national security angle on stories like that. Yeah. Which is 
if, if you believe, as I do, that one of the things that makes us secure is our dynamic economy, our competitive economy, right. and our multiplicity of sort of logistical ways to get things from place to place, again, navigable rivers and roads and all those sorts of things, anything that you have in place that disrupts that uh, what otherwise would be a very sort of dynamic and uh, you know networked uh, market is a national security risk. Right. You are undermining that. But the military is used to doing workarounds. Yeah, no, I understand and, that. And that's it's, it's, we're in a, right. This is all a big workaround. Yeah, workaround. You know, the only people yeah. who get waivers, by the way, are are people like the Jones Act carriers. When they can't get a ship <laughs> right. in time, they yeah. want to get somebody else's ship yeah. and waiver it in. Uh, sir, you uh, had a question. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to add, well, just one quick anecdote to your point about them being well-funded and, and well-organized. I remember I wrote one blog post for Heritage's website like five or six years ago. So I'm a guy, you know, in my you know, mid to late 20s. Uh, and I got responses left and right. And they brought, you know, four or five five-star generals in to, to meet with me. And I was like, oh, boy, I don't know what I just did. But it, it, it scared me a little bit. Um, but I mean, that's that's who that's who they are, right. um, and you know, we brought all our security folks in, and it was a it was a cordial conversation, but it was a very much agree to disagree. Um, mm -hmm. But but that's what they do. Well, they they have a bevy of hired generals. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, thank you, uh, William Hemsley, Legislative Structures. In terms of national defense and the means and ends, therefore, could you explore for me? your perception of the tension between the Jones Act and the Defense Production Act of 1950? And the which one? And the, the Defense, Defense Production, Defense Production Act. Act. It's out of my area. Do any of you know anything about that? Nope. <laughs> do you know? Well, tell us, then, tell us, yeah, tell us more. Tell us do you, do you know, sir? Exception to the rules. Essentially, the DPA um, breaks into three parts uh, how to uh, permit the military to rapidly uh, obtain okay. uh, capital assets of, of okay. some significance and complexity and time delay. Uh, under the statute, the president can make a presidential determination that even for a prolonged period of time, he might want to, uh, in this instance, allocate to the Department of Defense the authority to go into ship production. And the question I had latently was, if they did that on the DOD side and then leased the, the ship out, to mm -hmm. Jones Act operation, what would that do to the capital asset structure that the shippers would be looking at? Mm -hmm. uh, the ship ship operators. I'm sorry. So, so um, that's a good question. It's it's an and it's actually something that I think has been explored obliquely several times. So, uh, in the past, um, they've considered acquiring their own ships and um, uh, several. There's a set of ships that are run that are owned by the military to manage supply and other things. And they are essentially manned by probably half of the active seamen today and officers are on those ships that the military owns. So the, and the commercial seamen are on those ships. So, they're, so it's not the commercial fleet that's keeping them busy, it's this one. Um, the issue is a little bit about free markets and is it a temporary solution? Um, uh, if, if I were gonna do it, uh, you know, and I had the authority, or didn't like the president, this current president, um, and I'd say, well, just open them up and spend some money on helping ship people buy ships. You know, I, I think you could buy a fleet today and throw it into commerce. But you're right; it would 
you'd probably have Matson Navigation, we want to expand, and you have Crowley and all these others who are currently Jones Act operators, they want a piece of the pie. Um, uh, you'd have new, new guys. My friend over here and I might just do it, you know. <laughs> a couple hundred million dollars and buy a bunch of ships in the world market. You, you could do it, I think. Um, it, yes, it would be disruptive. Uh, 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 yes, it would create a domestic, I think it would incent a domestic shipping market. Railroads would oppose it. Uh, maybe the ATA would oppose it, the truck guys. Um, farmers would support it. Um, you know, everything has a pro and con, just like my friend here from Rice was talking about, you know, all these pieces balance out somewhere. So it'd be much better if you could set up the, the, the free market to work. All right, I'm going to turn yeah. my body deliberately to the left so that I can take a question from this side of the audience. Yes, sir, on the aisle there. There on my right. <laughs> yes, I had, I, I had to turn my body to the, to the, yes, sir. Thanks. A number of speakers have alluded to the um, great amount of international trade this country engages in yeah. and the um, large fraction of that that goes by ship. Um, and also others have, have commented on the sizes of ships now. Um, they've grown enormously. Um, speaker this morning talked about the need to dredge harbors just to make them functional. Right. And along with that goes the need to buy cranes and, yeah. and have huge piers. The whole thing expands. Mm -hmm. A consequence is you don't need as many ports mm. as you used to for a given amount of trade. And right. so the number of ports we've had has just shrunk uh, over time as the, uh, the ships have gotten right. bigger, but also as coastwise trade, which involves smaller ships carrying right. less stuff shorter distances, has has eroded. So yeah. my question is, um, I mean, that, that has done away with an awful lot of ports that right. used to be available for right. security reasons. And yeah. could someone That's a good, I think that, that speaks a little bit to what you were talking about right. in terms of the, yeah. Well, it, and as I was saying, the uh, U.S. coastwise trade in Great Lakes uh, has fallen 45% since 1960. Um, and the Jones Act, I think, also again, has been one of the issues for uh, inhibiting the development or the continued uh, or, or even expansion of the market. When you look at every other form of transportation, you know, railroad, uh, trucking, pipeline has all gone up in that same time frame. Um, and river navigation as well. Uh, and so uh, there's a couple things that I want to flag because we were talking about the dredging earlier. I, I was here for that panel. Um, and one is the, the Foreign Dredge Act is absolutely ridiculous. It's even more, it makes the Jones Act look more <laughs> look reasonable. Um, it's the, it's the brother law. <laughs> but um, uh, the other thing is, though, is that ships can come in um, light loaded. So, you know, just because this ship has a certain draft and they're building ships that are, that are much, much deeper than, than U.S. Uh, ports uh, can sustain. Right. But so you can light load ships. Um, but then also... Um, I think that with you, if you got rid of the Jones Act or significantly repealed it, you would actually see some of this coastwise trade going to some of these smaller um, um, ports. And the, the other thing I would flag is, is that um, uh, the dredging in this country, the maintenance dredging, so not the construction, as I mentioned, the construction for deepening is 65% federal, 35% local. It's a sliding cost share if you're only going a little bit less. But all the maintenance dredging is paid for by the um, harbor maintenance tax, um, which is an ad valorem tax on the value of uh, 
products being imported. Um, and actually, Congress doesn't appropriate to that level of what they actually generate each year. It's, it's an offset for the, uh, the deficit. So that was the one thing that was oh, wow. a flag. I would just is, is that there's actually more. It's it's an unwillingness of Congress to appropriate for all the maintenance dredging needs. Now, a lot of this are these tiny little ports and and right. uh, uh, on the Great Lakes that really. I don't think are, are necessary but, uh, to be dredged. But anyway, right. so I just wanted to clarify that. So point. I can add a little to that, too. I agree with all that. Um, I, I think it's worth noting, going back to this issue of what does the military actually need, not what they're stuck with, what they need. Um, they need not just container ships or oil ships. They also need what are called row rows, right. roll on, roll off. You know, the end of the ship comes down, it creates a platform, they roll vehicles up on it and just sail it away. I don't know how many of those we have anymore, uh, much less Jones that qualified. Right. Um, and this is part of the, this, the, the pretension of the pretensive, pretentiousness of the debate when you, you'll, and you may hear some of this later, um, about, <laughs> well, we've got all this vast fleet. Well, you can't use them. You know, part of the Jones Act fleet is landlocked in the Great Lakes. Right. They can't be used. Right. Okay. So... But I, I do think we should go back and get the military to say what they really need. Right. You know, like on small ports, so when, again, when I was on the science board, one of the issues is they, the military wants to know how deep every possible ship landing is on the entire planet Earth. And so when they get up there, how deep a ship can they do? Believe me, <laughs> they are not going to use 20,000 or 10,000 TEU ships. These are big ships. They're going to use the class of ships that we just replaced that, by the way, would go to mid-tier ports. Right. So there is a need. They, they have a different need than um, all of this. One, no, no, go sorry, ahead. one thing. Also, this sort of push towards all the deep things and, and, and everybody wanting to be able to have the container ship, it's 35% is coming from the port authority or from the state or whatever. Those are investments that should be made on the land side. Like, that it actually is where, where, that's where we're lag the world dramatically is our efficiency on the land side of our container ports and how, how quickly we can move um, yeah. products through. Off, out of the port, you're yeah, saying. Right, exactly. Right, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, right. And so that's where, it, but unfortunately, you know, when you look at the, the funding sources, you know, the core, that's not what they can do, right. you know, and so they, they're pushing de the deepenings. And um, on the military side about knowing the harbor is just one little fun fact. Uh, <laughs> in, the, in the Clinton administration, uh, the first U.S. warship that went into Port-au-Prince was a Coast Guard buoy tender because the Navy wouldn't go in until somebody had already like, marked the channel. <laughs> right. A uh, little, co little just, Coast Guard Navy humor yeah. there. Uh, um, good. This gets back to the earlier question, too, I think about the Defense Production Act, too, is just getting to a, a sincere uh, debate and requirement as to what is actually needed for national security purposes. Um, because, you know, DPA, I mean, th this administration was talking about it to bail out coal and nuclear plants, would be, which would be disastrous um, for the taxpayers and ratepayers. So I think if you can actually uh, use the DPA in a way that um, gets to what the military needs for sincere national security purposes, that's great. Uh, if you don't, it can be a slippery slope right. for yeah. subsidizing yeah. a lots, whole bunch of, of economic lots of activity. Mischief. Right. Lots of mischief. Yeah. Uh, right there, John. And then I see you on the, on the wall there. I might have time for, let's, let's, uh, Let's group these questions together. So uh, go ahead, John. I got one over on the wall, and I got this gentleman right there in the front. Go ahead, John. Okay, hey, John King. Uh, I wanted to spin off what Rob was saying as soon as we go into the shipbuilding business. Uh, <laughs> on Nicholas's side, he made the point earlier about uh, setting the requirement on the military side, and that's what maybe uh, Heritage had done. I was thinking about maybe the part of the, the Jones Act is simply separating the arguments. And even if we only used one Jones Act ship, say, in the Persian Gulf War, 
if the military decides they need, say, the total number that was employed during the first Persian Gulf War, that's the, the quantity that need, maybe you separate and create some kind of subsidy kind of thing for a military convertible ship like the way the Brits did mm. in the Falklands. Mm. And then that separates the whole argument on the purely commercial domestic side of the Jones Act as a way to go away. Uh, sir, you there, and then uh, if you could get uh, that gentleman on the wall. We'll group these questions together, and then you guys can answer the questions that you want to. Up there, right there on the wall in the yellow tie. Great. Go ahead, sir. Great. Thank you. Justin LeBlanc with Crossroads Strategies, uh, represents Seattle-based uh, commercial fishing interests, and your discussion about the applicability or the utility of Jones Act subject vessels to national security arguments is interesting, of course, because the Jones Act is also applicable to commercially built fishing vessels, including large-scale commercial fishing vessels that the hull is filled with factories and bunkhouses. Right. And right. so the utility for moving cargo is non-existent. Mm -hmm. but just so in order to answer or to end this with a question mark, Please. have any of you in your analysis thought about the particular application of the Jones Act to the fishery sector as opposed to arguably the much larger shipping sector? Uh, thank you for bringing that up. And finally you, sir. Yes, go ahead. Commander Josh Taylor, uh, military fellow at CSIS. Uh, it seems to me that the question regarding uh, the defense underpinnings of the Jones Act is perhaps built on a bit of a fallacy. It seems to me that it's built on the assumption that the United States will fight a foe by itself in a vacuum. <laughs> and we haven't fought a near-peer competitor solo since the Civil War. So my question is, is Given that fact, are, aren't there, are, are there mechanisms through NATO that we can charter NATO member vessels under Article 5? And uh, I, I'm pretty sure there are. My main concern is that the similar mechanisms don't exist for scenarios in the Pacific, right. which is of, of a concern if you could address yeah. that. Three great questions. Take any one that you wish. You guys want to go first now? You, yeah, why don't you, you want to take any of those? Um, so this is a Washington <laughs> audience, so we answer the question we want to answer. So that's how you <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good. Yeah, good question. Or don't answer any of them and or talk about all. whatever yeah, you yeah, want to start answering a question. I'll, I'll take the last <laughs> time. Uh, so I, I think the one, one is when you're bringing that up, it makes me think again about the Foreign Dredge Act. So going to the last question first, and that is, you know, the, the largest, leaving aside China, which has have significant dredging operation, but it's, it's the Netherlands and um, Belgium. 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 Yeah. And so it's, it's just that um, here is, we're, we, these are our NATO, you know, our NATO allies that we're essentially precluding from competing in our own domestic uh, production. But, you know, I, and I even mentioned- And they have capacity. They yeah, so they have, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Much more capacity than we do, and at a better cost, as was demonstrated uh, earlier. Um, and, but, you know, we do live in a world where steal from Canada is a, as a national, national security, security threat. threat. So, <laughs> um, so that's also something. So anyway, but I do think that that is, that is certainly the sort of pooling or, or even treaties and agreements and things along those lines could clearly be done that could meet that capacity and make sure that we're able to um, uh, meet whatever the military's needs are. Um, and then the other thing is, and this would kind of get to, I think Cato would appreciate this. You know, we keep going back to the Persian Gulf War. Notice, notice we're not talking about the Iraq War, you know, and, and some of that is, is because that was one where we got international consensus on our side that then made it much more likely to have allies to come in. And, and so, and also kind of then also deals with how we pick our, our battles. Yes, our wars. absolutely. Well said. I do like that. That's I'll cool. just quickly add on the first question. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I think the more you can separate it out and have sincere national security benefits those should be paid for by all the taxpayers. And, and the, the more you can separate that out, uh, I think the better off we would be. Very good. Yeah, and, and uh, yes, we, we used to think about fishing, 
uh, I, would, I would guess that you, um, but if you, caught, you left the United States and you caught fish and you delivered them to Japan, you would not have to be a U.S. flag, a Jones Act ship or a U.S. flag ship. But if you bring them back to the United States, they have to be on a Jones Act, high cost, expensive Jones Act fishing boat. Or right? in Yeah, or in U.S. waters, that's right. So, uh, so the, the law applies broadly to all ships, okay? The sister laws are the Passenger Vessel Act, yes. which is the Jones Act equivalent, and then the dredging. The dredging. 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 Yeah. And, um, and the, the, the pieces are very similar. Um, on the passenger side, uh, we actually sort of had the passenger people interested in this coalition too, um, but they decided they might be able to get a pass without us. Uh, <laughs> at the time, there were two, two U.S. flag passenger ships still in operation in the mid-'90s, both over 40 years old. Mm. Uh, one of them sank on the way to Hawaii, mm. uh, and the other one... Um, was, I think it was refitted or something. It, eventually, it's still sitting on the dock, I think, in, off in San Francisco or somewhere. But anyway, the, the, so they're really, um, all the passenger, there's all sorts of workarounds on passenger ships, just like there are fishing and everything else. And passenger ships, we have, you know, the, the trips to nowhere out of Florida. I brought it from Florida originally. So, you know, right. these cruise ships would like to go to the Bahamas and this and that and that. And, and, and uh, they, they, they couldn't be, U.S. flag and start in the, right. they had to be U.S. flag, but they were going to start in the U.S. and then go on a trip. And there right. just weren't the ships, so they created workarounds. Um, I do think at the core of this, and this is back to our friend in the corner, is what the military needs. And um, they are, they, I, I think they are classic in the Washington sense that they do not want to <clears throat> rock the boat. <laughs> um, they don't know whether it's worth it. Um, you remember Trent Lott said to me the thing about the law base. He also said this is going to be not going to go away till John Bro and I, Trent Lott and uh, Ted Stevens and uh, Dan Inouye are all gone from the Congress. Well, they're all gone and all it's gone. still here. Okay, so uh, as Mike Hanson pointed out earlier, there's uh, there is a new congressman from Hawaii who's anti Jones Act. Well, that's a big deal because we have not had anybody from the, those states who really would take it on. Alaska opposed it because they were the original victim of the Jones Act. Um, uh, Sarah Palin opposes it. And I tell you what, when Sarah Palin tweets on the Jones Act, this industry quakes. Uh, <laughs> but it is a huge PR effort. They are everywhere. Um, I went, I worked, did, I helped Jeb Bush in the primaries last year. And you know, I was coming down to see him one day. And as I'm leaving, there's a group of your admirals who had just briefed them about the national security implications of the Jones Act, how important it was. And I recognized all of them. They're on the payroll. <laughs> so it is, we, we have to get the military to be honest because, you know, we know it, they have to stand up and say what they really need. Right. And, and then we have to say what we're willing to deliver in a commercial market. It's really pretty straightforward, I think. All right. Well, uh, with that, it's uh, 2.30. I think it's time. i got to consult my agenda and make sure I get <laughs> this exactly correct here. Uh, so we have a break for the next 15 minutes. Uh, please be back here at uh, 2.45. Uh, and we'll hear about charting a new course, options for reform. Thank you all very much. Please join me in thanking our uh, panelists.